First Book, First Aspect, Section 9 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer, translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. First Book, First Aspect, Section 9. Concepts form a distinct class of ideas, existing only in the mind of man, and entirely different from the ideas of perception which we have considered up till now. We can therefore never attain to a sensuous and, properly speaking, evident knowledge of their nature, but only to a knowledge which is abstract and discursive. It would, therefore, be absurd to demand that they should be verified in experience, if by experience is meant the real external world, which consists of ideas of perception, or that they should be brought before the eyes or the imagination like objects of perception. They can only be thought, not perceived and only the effects which men accomplish through them are properly objects of experience. Such effects are language, preconceived and planned action, and science, and all that results from these. Speech, as an object of outer experience, is obviously nothing more than a very complete telegraph, which communicates arbitrary signs with the greatest rapidity and the finest distinctions of difference. But what do these signs mean? How are they interpreted? When someone speaks, do we at once translate his words into pictures of the fancy, which instantaneously flash upon us, arrange and link themselves together, and assume form and colour according to the words that are poured forth, and their grammatical inflections? What a tumult there would be in our brains while we listened to a speech, or to the reading of a book! But what actually happens is not this at all. The meaning of a speech is, as a rule, immediately grasped, accurately and distinctly taken in, without the imagination being brought into play. It is reason which speaks to reason, keeping within its own province. It communicates and receives abstract conceptions, ideas that cannot be presented in perceptions, which are framed once for all, and are relatively few in number but which yet encompass, contain, and represent all the innumerable objects of the actual world. This itself is sufficient to prove that the lower animal can never learn to speak or comprehend, although they have the organs of speech and ideas of perception in common with us. But because words represent this perfectly distinct class of ideas, whose subjective correlative is reason, they are without sense and meaning for the brutes. Thus language, like every other manifestation which we ascribe to reason, and like everything which distinguishes man from the brutes, is to be explained from this as its one simple source—conceptions, abstract ideas which cannot be presented in perception, but are general, and have no individual existence in space and time. Only in single cases do we pass from the conception to the perception, do we construct images as representatives of concepts, in perception, to which, however, they are never adequate. These cases are fully discussed in the essay on the principle of sufficient reason, section 28, and therefore I shall not repeat my explanation here. It may be compared, however, with what is said by Hume in the twelfth of his Philosophical Essays, page 244, and by Herder in the 
Metacritic, Part 1, page 274, an otherwise worthless book. The Platonic idea, the possibility of which depends upon the union of imagination and reason, is the principal subject of the third book of this work. Although concepts are fundamentally different from ideas of perception, they stand in a necessary relation to them, without which they would be nothing. This relation, therefore, constitutes the whole nature and existence of concepts. Reflection is the necessary copy or repetition of the originally presented world of perception, but it is a special kind of copy in an entirely different material. Thus concepts may be quite properly be called ideas of ideas. The principle of sufficient reason has here also a special form. Now we have seen that the form under which the principle of sufficient reason appears in a class of ideas always constitutes and exhausts the whole nature of the class, so far as it consists of ideas, so that time is throughout succession, and nothing more, space is throughout position, and nothing more, matter is throughout causation, and nothing more. In the same way the whole nature of concepts, or the class of abstract ideas, consists simply in the relation which the principle of sufficient reason expresses in them. And as this is the relation to the ground of knowledge, the whole nature of the abstract idea is simply and solely its relation to another idea, which is its ground of knowledge. This, indeed, may in the first instance be a concept and abstract idea, and this again may have only a similar abstract ground of knowledge. But the chain of grounds of knowledge does not extend ad infinitum. It must end at last in a concept which has its ground in knowledge of perception. For the whole world of reflection rests on the world of perception as its ground of knowledge. Hence the class of abstract ideas is in this respect distinguished from other classes. In the latter, the principle of sufficient reason always demands merely a relation of another idea of the same class. But in the case of abstract ideas, it at last demands a relation to an idea of another class. Those concepts which, as has just been pointed out, are not immediately related to the world of perception, but only through the medium of one, or it may be several other concepts, have been called by preference abstracta, and those which have their ground immediately in the world of perception have been called concreta. But this last name is only loosely applicable to the concepts denoted by it, for they are always merely abstracta, and not ideas of perception. These names, which have originated in a very dim consciousness of the distinctions they imply, may yet, with this explanation, be retained. As examples of the first kind of concepts, in other words, abstracta, in the fullest sense we may take relation, virtue, investigation, beginning, and so on. As examples of the second kind, loosely called concreta, we may take such concepts as man, stone, horse, etc. If it were not a somewhat too pictorial and therefore absurd simile, we might very appropriately call the latter the ground floor, and the former the upper stories of the building of reflection. Footnote. Refer chapter 5 and 6 of the supplement. End footnote. It is not, as is commonly supposed, an essential characteristic of a concept that it should contain much under it, that is to say that many ideas of perception, or it may be other abstract ideas, should stand to it in the relation of its ground of knowledge, in other words, be thought through it. This is merely a derived and secondary characteristic. 
and as a matter of fact does not always exist, though it must always exist potentially. This characteristic arises from the fact that a concept is an idea of an idea. In other words, its whole nature consists in its relation to another idea. But as it is not this idea itself which is generally an idea of perception and therefore belongs to quite a different class, the latter may have temporal, spatial, and other determinations, and in general many relations which are not thought along with it in the concept. Thus we see that several ideas which are different in unessential particulars may be thought by means of one concept, in other words may be brought under it. Yet this power of embracing several things is not an essential but merely an accidental characteristic of the concept. There may be concepts through which only one real object is thought, but which are nevertheless abstract and general, by no means capable of presentation individually and as perceptions. Such, for example, is the conception which any one may have of a particular town which he only knows from geography, although only this one town is thought under it it might yet be applied to several towns differing in certain respects. We see, then, that a concept is not general because of being abstracted from several objects, but conversely because generality, that is to say, non-determination of the particular, belongs to the concept as an abstract idea of the reason. Different things can be thought by means of the same one. It follows from what has been said that every concept, just because it is abstract and incapable of presentation in perception, and is therefore not a completely determined idea, has what is called extension or sphere, even in the case in which only one real object exists that corresponds to it. Now we always find that the sphere of one concept has something in common with the sphere of other concepts. That is to say, part of what is thought under one concept is the same as what is thought under other concepts, and conversely, part of what is thought under these concepts is the same as what is thought under the first. Although, if they are really different concepts, each of them, or at least one of them, contains something which the other does not contain. This is the relation in which every subject stands to its predicate. The recognition of this relation is called judgment. The representation of these spheres by means of figures in space is an exceedingly happy idea. It first occurred to Gottfried Pluquet, who used squares for the purpose. Lambert, although later than him, used only lines which he placed under each other. Euler carried out the idea completely with circles. Upon what this complete analogy between the relations of concepts and those of figures in space ultimately rests, I am unable to say. It is, however, a very fortunate circumstance for logic that all relations of concepts according to their possibility, in other words a priori, may be made plain in perception by the use of such figures, in the following way. 1. The spheres of two concepts coincide, for example the concept of necessity and the concept of following from given grounds, in the same way the concepts of ruminantia and bisoka ruminating and clove-hoofed animals, also those of vertebrate and red-blooded animals, although there might be some doubt about this on account of the analida, they are convertible concepts. Such concepts are represented by a single circle which stands for either of them. 2. The sphere of one concept includes that of the other. Illustration. Category horse within category animal. 3. 
A sphere includes two or more spheres which exclude each other and fill it. Illustration. Circle divided into thirds, right, acute, and obtuse. 4. Two spheres include each a part of the other. Illustration. Two overlapping circles, one flower and one red. 5. Two spheres lie in a third but do not fill it. Illustration. A large circle, matter, within which are two other circles, water and earth. This last case applies to all concepts whose spheres have nothing immediately in common, for there is always a third sphere, often a much wider one, which includes both. To these cases all combinations of concepts may be referred, and from them the entire doctrine of the judgment, its conversion, contraposition, equipollence, disjunction, this according to the third figure, may be deduced. From these also may be derived the properties of the judgment upon which Kant based his pretended categories of the understanding, with the exception, however, of the hypothetical form, which is not a combination of concepts, but of judgments. A full account is given in the appendix of modality, and indeed of every property of judgments on which the categories are founded. With regard to the possible combinations of concepts which we have given, it has only further to be remarked that they may also be combined with each other in many ways. For example, the fourth figure with the second, only if one sphere, which partly or wholly contains another, is itself contained in a third sphere, do these together exemplify the syllogism in the first figure, in other words, that combination of judgments, by means of which it is known that a concept which is partly or wholly contained in another concept, is also contained in a third concept, which again contains the first, and also, conversely, the negation, the pictorial representation which can—mistake, the pictorial representation of which can, of course, only be two connected spheres which do not lie within a third sphere. If many spheres are brought together in this way, we get a long train of syllogisms, this schematism of concepts, which has already been fairly well explained in more than one textbook, may be used as the foundation of the doctrine of the judgment, and indeed of the whole syllogistic theory, and in this way the treatment of both becomes very easy and simple, because through it all syllogistic rules may be seen in their origin, and may be deduced and explained. It is not necessary, however, to load the memory with these rules, as logic is never of practical use, but has only a theoretical interest for philosophy. For although it may be said that logic is related to rational thinking as thorough base is to music, or less exactly as ethics is to virtue, or aesthetics to art, we must yet remember that no one ever became an artist by the study of aesthetics, that a noble character was never formed by the study of ethics that long before Rameau men composed correctly and beautifully, and that we do not need to know thorough bass in order to detect discords. And just as little do we need to know logic in order to avoid being misled by fallacies. Yet it must be conceded that thorough bass is of the greatest use in the practice of musical composition, although it may not be necessary for the understanding of it. And indeed aesthetics and even ethics, though in a much less degree, and for the most part negatively, may be of some use in practice, so that we cannot deny them all practical worth, but of logic even this much cannot be conceded. 
It is nothing more than the knowledge in the abstract of what every one knows in the concrete. Therefore we call in the aid of logical rules just as little to enable us to construct a correct argument as to prevent us from consenting to a false one, and the most learned logician lays aside the rules of logic altogether in his actual thought. This may be explained in the following way. Every science is a system of general and therefore abstract truths, laws, and rules with reference to a special class of objects. The individual case coming under these laws is determined in accordance with this general knowledge, which is valid once for all. Because such application of the general principle is far easier than the exhaustive investigation of the particular case. For the general abstract knowledge which has once been obtained is always more within our reach than the empirical investigation of the particular case. With logic, however, it is just the other way. It is the general knowledge of the mode of procedure of the reason expressed in the form of rules. It is reached by the introspection of reason, and by abstraction from all content. But this mode of procedure is necessary and essential to reason, so that it will never depart from it if left to itself. It is, therefore, easier and surer to let it proceed itself according to its nature in each particular case than to present to it the knowledge abstracted from this procedure in the form of a foreign and externally given law. It is easier because, while in the case of all other sciences, the general rule is more within our reach than the investigation of the particular case taken by itself. With the use of reason, on the contrary, its necessary procedure in a given case is always more within our reach than the general rule abstracted from it. For that which thinks in us is reason itself. It is surer, because a mistake may more easily occur in such abstract knowledge, or in its application, than that a process of reason should take place which would run contrary to its essence and nature. Hence arises the remarkable fact that while in other sciences the particular case is always proved by the rule, in logic, on the contrary, the rule must always be proved from the particular case. And even the most practised logician, if he remark that in some particular case he concludes otherwise than the rule prescribes, will always expect to find a mistake in the rule rather than in his own conclusion. To desire to make practical use of logic means, therefore, to desire to derive with unspeakable trouble from general rules that which is immediately known with the greatest certainty in the particular case. It is just as if a man were to consult mechanics as to the motion of his body, and physiology as to his digestion, and, and whoever has learnt logic for practical purposes is like him who would teach a beaver to make its own dam. Logic is, therefore, without practical utility, but it must nevertheless be retained because it has philosophical interest as the special knowledge of the organization and action of reason. It is rightly regarded as a definite, self-subsisting, self-contained, complete, and thoroughly safe discipline, to be treated scientifically for itself alone, and independently of everything else, and therefore to be studied at the universities. But it has its real value, in relation to philosophy as a whole, in the inquiry into the nature of knowledge, and indeed of rational and abstract knowledge. Therefore, the exposition of logic should not have so much the form of a practical science, should not contain merely naked arbitrary rules for the correct formation of the judgment, the syllogism, etc., but should rather be directed to the knowledge of the nature of reason and the concept, and to the detailed investigation of the principle of sufficient reason of knowing. 
For logic is only a paraphrase of this principle, and more exactly only of that exemplification of it, in which the ground that gives truth to the judgment is neither empirical nor metaphysical, but logical or metalogical. Besides the principle of sufficient reason of knowing, it is necessary to take account of the three remaining fundamental laws of thought, or judgments of metalogical truth, so nearly related to it. And out of these the whole science of reason grows. The nature of thought proper, that is to say, of the judgment and the syllogism, must be exhibited in the combination of the spheres of concepts, according to the analogy of the special schema, in the way shown above. And from all this the rules of the judgment and the syllogism are to be deduced by construction. The only practical use we can make of logic is in a debate, when we can convict our antagonist of his intentional fallacies, rather than of his actual mistakes, by giving them their technical names. By thus throwing into the background the practical aim of logic, and bringing out its connection with the whole scheme of philosophy as one of its chapters, we do not think that we shall make the study of it less prevalent than it is just now. For at the present day, every one who does not wish to remain uncultured, and to be numbered with the ignorant and incompetent multitude, must study speculative philosophy, for the nineteenth century is a philosophical age, though by this we do not mean either that it has philosophy, or that philosophy governs it, but rather that it is ripe for philosophy, and therefore stands in need of it. This is a sign of a high degree of civilization, and indeed is a definite stage in the culture of the ages. Footnote. Refer to chapter 9 and 10 of the supplement. End footnote. Though logic is of so little practical use, it cannot be denied that it was invented for practical purposes. It appears to me to have originated in the following way. As the love of debating developed among Eleatics, the Megarics, and the Sophists, and by degrees became almost a passion, the confusion in which nearly every debate ended must have made them feel the necessity of a method of procedure as a guide and for this a scientific dialectic had to be sought. The first thing which would have to be observed would be that both the disputing parties should always be agreed on some one proposition, to which the disputed points might be referred. The beginning of the methodical procedure consisted in this, that the propositions admitted on both sides were formally stated to be so, and placed at the head of the inquiry. But these propositions were at first concerned only with the material of the inquiry. It was soon observed that in the process of going back to the truth admitted on both sides, and of deducing their assertions from it, each party followed certain forms and laws about which, without any express agreement, there was no difference of opinion. And from this it became evident that these must constitute the peculiar and natural procedure of reason itself, the form of investigation. Although this was not exposed to any doubt or difference of opinion, some pedantically systematic philosopher hit upon the idea that it would look well, and be the completion of the method of dialectic, if this formal part of all discussion, this regular procedure of reason itself, were to be expressed in abstract propositions, just like the substantial propositions admitted on both sides, and placed at the beginning of every investigation as the fixed canon of debate to which reference and appeal must always be made. In this way, what had formerly been followed only by tacit agreement, and instinctively, would be consciously recognized and formally expressed. 
By degrees more or less perfect expressions were found for the fundamental principles of logic, such as the principles of contradiction, sufficient reason, excluded middle, the dictum de omni et nullo, as well as the special rules of the syllogism, as, for example, ex maris particularibus aut negativis nihil sequitur a rationato ad rationum non valet consequentia, and so on. That all this was only brought about slowly and with great pains, and up till the time of Aristotle remained very incomplete, is evident from the awkward and tedious way in which logical truths are brought out in many of the Platonic dialogues and still more from what Sextus Empiricus tells us of the controversies of the Megarics, about the easiest and simplest logical rules, and the laborious way in which they were brought into a definite form. But Aristotle collected, arranged, and corrected all that had been discovered before his time, and brought it to an incomparably greater state of perfection. If we thus observe how the course of Greek culture had prepared the way for, and led up to the work of Aristotle, we shall be little inclined to believe the assertion of the Persian author, quoted by Sir William Jones, with much approval, that Callisthenes found a complete system of logic among the Indians, and sent it to his uncle Aristotle. Asiatic Researches, Volume 4, page 163. It is easy to understand that in the dreary Middle Ages the Aristotelian logic would be very acceptable to the controversial spirit of the schoolmen, which, in the absence of all real knowledge, spent its energy upon mere formulas and words, and that it would be eagerly adopted even in its mutilated Arabian form, and presently established as the centre of all knowledge. Though its authority has since declined, yet up to our own time logic has retained the credit of a self-contained, practical, and highly important science. Indeed, in our own day, the Kantian philosophy, the foundation-stone of which is taken from logic, has excited a new interest in it, which, in this respect at any rate, that is, as the means of knowledge of the nature of reason, it deserves. Correct and accurate conclusions may be arrived at if we carefully observe the relation of the spheres of concepts, and only conclude that one sphere is contained in a third sphere, when we have clearly seen that this first sphere is contained in a second, which in its turn is contained in the third. On the other hand, the art of sophistry lies in casting only a superficial glance at the relations of the spheres of the concepts, and then manipulating these relations to suit our purposes, generally in the following way. When the sphere of an observed concept lies partly within that of another concept, and partly within a third altogether different sphere, we treat it as if it lay entirely within the one or the other, as may suit our purpose. For example, in speaking of passion, we may subsume it under the concept of the greatest force, the mightiest agency in the world, or under the concept of the irrational, and this again under the concept of impotency or weakness. We may then repeat the process, and start anew with each concept to which the argument leads us. A concept has almost always several others, and each of these contains part of the sphere of the first but also includes in its own sphere something more, which is not in the first. But we draw attention only to that one of these latter concepts, under which we wish to subsume the first, under which we wish to subsume the first, and let the others remain unobserved, or keep them concealed. On the possession of this skill depends the whole art of sophistry and all finer fallacies. 
For logical fallacies such as mentiens, velatus, cornatus, etc., are clearly too clumsy for actual use. I am not aware that hitherto any one has traced the nature of all sophistry and persuasion back to this last possible ground of its existence, and referred it to the peculiar character of concepts, in other words, to the procedure of reason itself. Therefore, as my exposition has led me to it, though it is very easily understood, I will illustrate it in the following table by means of a schema. This table is intended to show how the spheres of concepts overlap each other at many points, and so leave room for a passage from each concept to whichever one we please of several other concepts. I hope, however, that no one will be led by this table to attach more importance to this little explanation, which I have merely given in passing, than ought to belong to it, from the nature of the subject. I have chosen as an illustration the concept of travelling. Its sphere partially includes four others, to any of which the sophist may pass at will. These again partly include other spheres, several of which two or more at once, and through these the sophist takes whichever way he chooses, always as if it were the only way. Still at last he reaches, in good or evil, whatever end he may have in view. In passing from one sphere to another, it is only necessary always to follow the direction from the centre, the given chief concept, to the circumference, and never to reverse the process. Such a piece of sophistry may be either an unbroken speech, or it may assume the strict syllogistic form according to what is the weak side of the hearer. Most scientific arguments, and especially philosophical demonstrations, are at bottom not much more than this for how else would it be possible that so much, in different ages, has not only been falsely apprehended, for error itself has a different source, but demonstrated and proved, and has yet afterwards been found to be fundamentally wrong? For example, the Leibniz-Wolfian philosophy, Ptolemaic astronomy, Stahl's chemistry, Newton's theory of colors, etc. Footnote. Refer to Chapter 11 of Supplement. End footnote. End of First Book, First Aspect, Section 9 Recording by Bill Borst